Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, we get to indulge my inner history nerd. Oh, I guess. In the lounge, we're going to be talking to Frank Clark, who is the Master Historian of Foodways at Colonial Williamsburg. They have an upcoming conference called Ales Through History, which is going to feature a whole bevy of guest speakers, folks that we've talked about on this podcast, folks we've had on this podcast, but exploring the world of beer from ancient times, Tudor times, colonial times, all the way up through World War One. So if you're like me, and like I said, I'm a history nerd, this is going to be your Jimmy Jam. So sit back and we'll get to Frank in just a moment. <laughs> yeah, and boy, there's going to be plenty of that, too. Yeah. But before we do any of that kind of stuff, please listen to this message about the people who make this show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody. We're starting off with announcements today. Yep, just a few quick things before we get into the show. One of which is if you go and check your podcast feed, you'll find a new episode of The Brew Files, where I talked to one of my favorite people in the beer world, Bob Sylvester. And most importantly, Bob went over to Belgium. He went to celebrate Doronka Double X Bitter, which is... <laughs> <laughs> the the photos, the experiences. I want to be Bob. Yeah, I want to go back to Belgium. I miss that place. Um, but go and listen to the show. I swear, I think probably the most useful tip and technique came right up at the start, where we find out that Rochefort just uses brown sugar. That's that's just so remarkable to me. <laughs> well, I think if you listen to the episode, you'll find a lot of interesting things in there, particularly about well, just how much more relaxed the Belgians are about making beer than we tend to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that wouldn't be too too difficult, would it? Nope. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's the Pongo Fund, which is kind of like a food bank for pets. Uh, helps people who are having trouble feeding their pets get them fed, because we all know how important that is. Uh, we're going to be funding them through the end of the year. So please go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and throw us a couple bucks that we can pass along to Pongo and his buddies for feeding all those hungry pets out there. Pets need food, too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's enough of that. 
Uh, don't forget, if you have feedback for the show or if you have questions, you can always send us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And in the meanwhile, it's time to go have a beer. It sure as heck is. We're going to head over to the pub. We'll catch you there when we come back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves wort flow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grainfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grainfather.com. are sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere somewhere in cyberspace and today we're both having the same beer and it's a great one in my opinion uh, so i'll let you talk about it first we do this sometimes uh and largely it seems to be inspired by hey i got this beer available near me you want to try it uh, <laughs> yeah man and in this particular case if you hadn't been paying attention to sierra nevada you know we tend to think of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and all the IPAs that they do and all the wonderful things that we drink from them over the years. And they're a big brewery. So not a lot of times do we think about them as having limited releases. Well, at least here in California and over in North Carolina and a few selected states where they can ship to. So Sierra Nevada has been doing these things that they call limited release beers or their FOMO small batch. And if you're in California, North Carolina, one of the states that they ship to, you can actually go and get the beer shipped to you, which I did. And then, of course, I turned around and said, Denny, Denny, do you want some beer? And of course. Yep. And so in this really good case, they made a beer called West Ghost IPA. 
and you know, kind of a cool little can with Pac-Man type stuff on it and whatnot. But you know, saying bitter's not dead and trying to and kind of bringing back a sort of a classic West Coast IPA. This is a 7.2% IPA, which is a little bit more oomphy than I normally think of with a, a West Coast IPA. Uh, not not with, not out of range, but still. 65 IBUs and uses just two row pale and carapils, which is about as classic as you get, like in terms of the not new new, but sort of newish West Coast IPA. And then the hops are Magnum, which we all know I love, Idaho 7, Citra, and Amarillo. And what they say here is an old school IPA back from the dead. Lest we forget that today's haze began bright, this West Coast ghost is uber crisp and proudly bitter with notes of citrus and sweet fruit. Now, like I said, we got this uh, pretty damn fresh, right? And I shipped some up to Denny because uh, they don't ship it to Oregon, but I can. <laughs> That's right, man. And I appreciate it. Let me tell you, uh, we both love this beer. Well, and it does live up to exactly what it says on the can, which is it is bright. It is pale. It is crisp. It has a nice, refreshing bitterness to it. But I think actually the thing I was surprised about was, you know, we've gone back and forth about the where is the West Coast IPA? What, you know, what what's happened with it over the years? You know, what's it now today versus what it was? Right, right. And this to me sort of bridges in a little bit into that what I've called the modern West Coast IPA because of just how much uh, soft, fruity character there is to it as well. No, don't get me but, wrong. But still a real firm bitterness. It's very crisp. And let me tell you, I I actually jumped for joy when I saw that there was carapils in it. <laughs> uh, so so many people have this thing about carapils and crystal malts. It's like, oh, I'm not going to use those. What if they work? <laughs> you know, what if it's a good thing to put in there? Mm-hmm. And this beer this beer proves that using carapils is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact. Uh, the last uh, IPA I made and the last Pilsner I made, I used just a touch of carapils in both of them because I feel like I can taste it. You know, now maybe I'm deluding myself. I, you know, it wouldn't be the first time, would it? Uh, but I, I really feel like it makes a difference that I can taste and like. You know, of course, the answer to that is going to be, uh, so you should brew one without and brew one with. <laughs> Put them side well, by side. I've, I, and I have done, I mean, I have not done it side by side, but I have many times, uh, brewed both Pilsner, especially Pilsner and IPA without carapils. And, you know, I haven't done a side by side, but I do know that I like the ones with carapils, whether I like them better, who knows, who cares? Right. But again, I think this is a really interesting bridge between those sort of two styles of West Coast IPA that we talked about. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree, man. Kind of that San Diego, San Diego newish West Coast IPA with, you know, as little crystal malt type ideas and a lot of hop characters, nice bitterness to it. But also then with all the tropical fruit, like particularly from that Citra and the Idaho 7, you know, kind of giving you a little bit of a bridge back over to the, the sort of modern West Coast IPA with the, you know, we're not hazy, but we get you like fruit flavors. <laughs> yeah, and it's not too much fruit. It's not over the top at all. Uh, you know, it, it's really nicely done and, and in context. So, um, I, I, it was it was a great beer, man. Uh, I think I have one left. Uh, Paula's drunk both of her too, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm going to be sad when it's gone. Well, I was going to say if you're not careful and don't drink it before too long, Paula might get to it for you. Oh no, she's very good about making sure we split everything. 
There you go. But again, I don't think it's available for shipment anymore, but it's still apparently on in their tap room. If you get a chance to try this, I mean, obviously Sierra Nevada knows what they're doing with a hoppy beer. And in this particular case, I think it excels. Yeah. So you want to talk about a product from Sierra Nevada that didn't send me? <laughs> right. So at the same time that I sent Denny some West Ghost IPA, I also sent him one of Sierra Nevada's newest products, which, you know, we've been playing around with the idea of no alcohol, low alcohol, and other sort of beery or beer adjacent type things to drink because, you know, obviously sometimes you need something other than beer. Um, and so Sierra Nevada has a product called Hop Splash, which is effectively a hoppy water. Um, Denny, you want to you want to tell people about it? Well, you know, I, I was expecting something where the hops really came through. Uh, so I poured it. I took a, a little sniff of the aroma. There was a very, very faint uh, kind of fruity hop aroma to it. Uh, I took a sip, and the first words out of my mouth were, "Why would anybody want to drink this?" <laughs> Uh, it had absolutely no hop flavor to it that I could detect. It was so bitter and astringent that I almost spit it out. Um, it just, it, I mean, you know, for those of you who've tried it and like it, fine. <laughs> you know, taste is a personal subjective thing, but I did not like that one even a little bit. Uh, yeah. So what did you think of it, man? Well, no, I'm kind of in line with you. It has, I mean, obviously it's sparkling water, so it has no body. But um, what I did notice with it was that I got a lot of, a lot more of the tea and tannic-esque characteristics, what I think you're yeah. kind, of, kind of referring to as astringent. Um, and I did get a big wallop of bitterness and not as much hop aroma. Um, so, yeah, I, frankly, I was a little disappointed in it because I've been playing around with some of these, and some of them are really good. This one still feels like it needs tweaking because it, it just doesn't sing in the way I would expect something from Sierra Nevada right. and Hops to do. Yeah, it certainly wasn't what I was expecting, and, you know, um, it makes me it makes me worried about other ones. Now, you also sent me a bottle of the Lagunitas Hop Water, and I haven't tried that yet, so uh, yeah. I'll do that, and we'll talk about that on another show. Yeah, that, that's but, the Lagunitas uh, Hop Refresher, right? which I sent you a bottle of, and from what I understand, it's about to go into cans. Yay. Oh, really? Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I, I hope it's going to be more enjoyable. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yep. Well, and now from something that we did like from Sierra Nevada to something we didn't like from Sierra Nevada to something we look forward to every year from Sierra Nevada, I have no clue how this became a Sierra Nevada sequence, but it did. Uh, celebration's back. Hooray! Hooray! And my only thing about it is... I don't know if it's me or if it's true, but damn, it feels early. You know, it, it might, but I don't really know. You know, I'd have to, I'd have to go check. Yeah. Saying it, it feels early is kind of like saying, oh, it's not as good as last year's because <laughs> unless you really have some way to compare, you just don't know. I know it just, but when I started to see the post from Sierra Nevada saying, hey, you know, the celebration's back, I was like, really? Now? Ah. But yeah, I'm, uh, look, I'll never argue with it being back. Oh um, no, man! Yeah, so I will. I will totally take it because I, I think it's a a fantastic beer. It's something I look forward to every year, um, and I, I wonder if it will be both. I think it is in cans this year as well, so it'll be interesting to see how those how those work again. Yep. Yeah, uh, 
I mean, I had the cans last year, and I just was great, you know, no no different than in bottles, which is the way it should be. Who knows? Maybe even a little bit better than in bottles. Who knows? But go and take a look for your celebration. If it's not there now, it will be soon. And enjoy one That's of America's right. classics. Now that they finally admitted that it's an IPA. Yeah, really. I mean, it was obvious to all of us all the way along. Yep. All right. And so from <laughs> all things Sierra Nevada to things not Sierra Nevada, in fact, probably anti-Sierra Nevada, a couple stories that I saw that I thought were really interesting was there was a piece that was published about opening up Germany's oldest beer. And what I thought was kind of cool about this was they did this at the University of Munich, or the Technical University of Munich, and if they found a beer that was stored in like a commercial building in a bottle, sealed with a cork and wire and wax, and just otherwise kind of kept at room temperature, effectively. Um, and it was brewed in 1885 in northern Germany. And I love the fact that one... Okay, so we got a beer from 1885. Now, it's not the oldest beer that's been found and opened and analyzed, but you know, it's the oldest one I know from in Germany. Yeah. Um, I have to admire the fact that the scientists who opened this bottle did two things, one of which was they did technical analysis of it, which... Yeah, you know, chemical analyses and, and all that sort of fun stuff, which is something I would totally expect. And the other one, which somebody has a very brave soul, uh, they actually put a panel of tasters together to actually taste the beer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and so the analysis, what I thought was interesting was, one, it showed that the beer itself, when it was fresh, was probably a pale lager-style beer. You know, just like looking at the components that I could find in the beer. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, it, it appears to be sort of, if we compare it to commercial examples today, a pale lager. And also very interesting, if you know anything about German beer history, the northern Germany didn't require the Rheinhutzgebot at the time, right? Because that was all later with the unification and all that sort of fun stuff. And the beer was actually still brewed according to the Rheinhutzgebot, you know, structures, as they can tell from the analysis. So... That I thought was interesting from a technical analysis point of view. And then, of course, they said the tasting notes. Love this quote. It was highly harmonious, both in terms of the overall impression and bitterness. In general, it is a very lean, elegant, and harmonious beer that still has an excellent taste and aroma. Now, they had also <laughs> mentioned notes of sherry and all that sort of fun stuff. So, yeah, the beer itself was heavily oxidized, which, shocker. Um... Now, Denny, I know you've had the Burton Ale from uh, Ballantine's in the past. Yeah, it was like 74 years old or something when I had it. Uh, there was uh, no carbonation left. Uh, it tasted a little bit like watered-down scotch. Mm -hmm. Now, would you drink a beer from 1885? I, well, I don't know if I'd drink the whole thing, but I'd sure as hell try it. <laughs> well, Wouldn't you? I might. I, I, I think, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, for as adventurous as I am in terms of eating and trying things, so, for some reason, I still kind of feel like there'd be a bit of a pause in, in me before I actually, you know, drank it. Now, I would totally sniff it, no problem. Yeah. Uh, but I think at the, at the moment of truth, when you lifted the glass to your lips, there might be a slight quiver before, oh. before I actually did it. Jeez. What? I mean, come on. Um... <laughs> But I do think that was interesting, just as a fun little thing, you know, and also to see a beer survive from that long. I think they've pulled beers from, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Bass, like from a Bass cellar, 
in the UK that were older. And of course, then you got the stuff where it's like, these bottles were found on a shipwreck and from the 1800s or whatever. Um, but it's always interesting to me to see old beer kind of pop up. Um, now, not in the same vein, but in the sort of the vein of old styles of beer. It's a very typical experience, I think, these days for beer tasters to go into a brewery and be confronted with a plethora of choices, right? I mean, yeah. D- Denny, you go to Ale Song. How many beers do they have? Well, that's a tough thing to say. Um, you know, maybe, you, you be maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe eight or ten at any given moment. And even Wild Parrot, which is the brewery that has opened up uh, near me, and you know who you'll be hearing an update from uh, shortly, you know they're a brand new brewery. They have seven beers on tap, along with wine and cider and all that sort of fun stuff. It is not uncommon to walk into a brewery and have fifteen plus different beer choices. Walk into a beer bar and you know you got those beer bars that say we have a hundred different beers on tap. Oh yeah, man. I mean around here even it's not uncommon for somebody to have fifteen or twenty. So the reason why I'm waxing so much on about this is there is a new brewery that has been opened up in Maine, uh, and people are kind of referring to it as the anti-hype brewery. It's called Sacred Profane, and it's open, but it's been opened up by two longtime commercial brewers and you know people around the beer industry. Uh, Michael Fava, who was um, most famously with the Oxbow Brewing Company. And then Brianne Allen, who was sort of a big-time brewer at Notch Brewing, and she was also the one who kind of kicked off the whole firestorm about um, sexual harassment in the brewing industry, what was that, a year and a half ago, two years ago now? Um, they've opened up this place. It's in a tiny town in Maine, and it, they've styled it as a Czech-style tank pub. And literally, it's like a small little brew pub, serving tanks hanging up over the bar, Lucre faucets, you know, the side pull type faucets, and they only serve two styles of beer, a light and a dark Czech style lager. And that's it. And they are getting lots and lots of raves for the beer. Um, so one, I, I love the fact they apparently were the first English speakers to go through the Pilsner Urkel pouring program to become like a, you know, a sort of certified tapster, uh, you know, server of beer through these side faucets. Um, but I also just love that whole idea because to me, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like going to a brewery. I like to be able to try a lot of different flavors of things, but I know that when I go to a brewery and I end up tasting that beer, and you know what I mean by that beer, that beer that hits your glass and makes you stop and go, Oh, Right? Yeah, right. If you can give me a place where that beer is all you have on tap, I think I'd still be a happy camper. And that sounds like exactly (laughs) what they're going for. Yeah, man. Quality over quantity. I mean, personally, I I seldom have more than one or two beers when I go to a place. I know that that may not be typical of everybody, but that's the way it is for me. So someplace that has... Two very good beers on tap is all I'm going to need. Yep. And, I mean, again, it's like, you know, I'm I still trying to get them on the show, but the Shadow Grove earlier this year when they had that ordinary bitter on tap, and I went and I had it, you know, was it Tread Lightly Rabbit for their enemies about? Uh, that beer is one of those that beers. If I go into that place and they have that beer on tap, I'm going to have a hard time trying anything else. Right. 
And so the fact, like, they're really running on this program of, like, we only have these two. We're specializing it. It's a very European model. You know, I think of, like, Trumer Pills, for instance, here in the U.S. The Trumer Brewery literally only pours the one damn beer. Um, I really want to try it because I think it's absolutely crazy in this day and age and how the typical consumer acts about beer and brewery visits. But if they can pull it off, yay. Well, and, you know, in a way, it's kind of the same thing as breweries that make all these wild things because people want new stuff all the time. And a lot of those new things don't end up being real successful because they're a one-off or something like that. Uh, again, give me something extremely high quality as opposed to four or five or 15 things that are just kind of average. Yep. So that's the beer news as we see it today. Obviously, there's more stories going on. But uh, let me know, would you actually look forward to a place that only served two high-quality beers in your area? Anything else that we know? Would you drink a a beer from 1885? Would you be like me, or would you be like Denny? And you can always let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. So uh, I guess now it's time to uh, go do some reading? Yep, time to go to the library. Okay, we're going to head over there, and we'll meet you there in a minute right after this. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome to the library. We're sitting here doing all things library-ish, and we're going to be talking about. <laughs> we're going to be talking. No, it's okay. We're going to be talking about uh, an article that Drew ran across. It has some pretty interesting information about uh, good old Maillard reactions. Right. So this actually popped up into my feed from Dan Pixley, uh, he who edits the Milk the Funk Wiki. And Dan does a lot of scouring of technical papers. You can go back and listen to the podcast when I interviewed him about it. And he posted this, and it has the very scintillating title of Amino Acids and Glycation Compounds in Hot Trube Formed During Wart Bowling. Boy, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but that just makes me want to jump all over it. Woo-hoo. So Dan posted <laughs> this, like, literally the day before we're recording right now. 
And I sat down and I read it. We'll include the link to the study in the show notes, of course. Um, and one, it always reminds me that, man, a lot of scientists are not great writers. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, they're not trying to write a novel. No. Uh, but reading through it and assuming that I've got this right, the whole point of the study was trying to analyze Maillard reaction compounds and see whether or not those compounds are increased during a boil. So question always being out there, you know, we've bandied about for years, the idea of like kettle caramelization, Maillard reactions and all this sort of fun stuff. And the question is always, okay, well, can you actually form those compounds during a boil? Because, well, water doesn't allow things to get any hotter than 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And caramelization, for instance, requires higher temperatures. Maillard reactions tend to happen much better at higher temperatures. Uh, There's some debate about whether or not they also happen in conjunction to colder temperatures with, like, oxidation processes and all that sort of fun stuff. But that's not the point of this. Um, You go through and read the study. I will say one thing I really actually liked in the study is they really very clearly pointed out and spelled out exactly how they did everything in in their study, like including listing out the chemicals and the compounds that they used. If you ever want to see the difference between what what Denny and I have always referred to as citizen science, you know, like the stuff we've done here, uh, the <laughs> yeah. stuff over philosophy and all that, versus like actual real technical beer science, go take a look at this um, because they're laying out everything. What I thought was interesting was they started off using extract, right? No mashing, not even trying to do like a Congress mash or anything else, just using commercially available extracts that they do analysis on. Uh, Salt to put a right level of uh, ionic compounds in it, and then uh, water. No hops. And they basically created a uniform 16 degrees Play-Doh, so about 1064-ish wort. Um, And I did think it was interesting in the notes they talked about this. They were like, well, you know, in times past, this would be an unusual gravity for us to use because, you know, it's a little high from where a lot of standard studies are done. But with the increased amount of craft brewing and IPAs and higher alcohol beers that are available on the market, uh, 16 degrees Plato no longer seems outlandish for beer study. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think it does really. Yep. Um, but I thought the note was really, really funny. And they did various steps in order to make sure that everything was dissolved correctly. And then they boiled for exactly 60 minutes. And they took that resulting final wort and did analysis on it, uh, basically looking at like what six different Maillard compounds were from the wort when it was brand new and unboiled versus when it was boiled and trying to look for, you know, okay, is anything changing? And across five of the six that they were looking for, nothing changed. And there was one of the compounds that did change. It didn't really feel like, and again, I'm trying to put my own read on this, and I don't know how good this is because it's written a lot of biochemistry type stuff, and that's not my forte. Um, the one compound, which is unspecified as to what its uh, flavor and sensory impact is, did increase, but it didn't feel like it was a large increase. What it did actually look like uh, from the conclusions in there was that their suggestion was that most of the Maillard compounds that we get in a final beer, a finished beer, are actually the things that are being dragged in from the malt and from the malting process. So those caramel malts, for instance, have a lot of Maillard compounds in them. Those get dragged across in the boil. And so they're not really being created in the boil as much as they're being concentrated. And you're not really going to see any sort of Maillard reactions. I saw some brewers talking on Dan's thread where 
Uh, somebody was saying they don't see any Maillard reactions until they're at multi-hour boils. Um, right. And then, then how do you know if you're creating them or if you're just concentrating what's already there? To me, to me, the bottom line is it's cutting through all the, uh, the nerdy science that Drew loves so much yeah. is that, you know, you will hear people talk about kettle caramelization. We have always said, no, that's really not happening. Um, because you, you can't get hot enough. And that is true. That's science right there. But we have said, well, what you're doing is you're creating Maillard reactions. And now it turns out that maybe you're not actually creating them, but they're there from when the malt was uh, killed and, and made. And so what you're doing then is just concentrating those compounds that are already there. So I, I find this like really fascinating, and I'm going to be following the follow-ups uh, very, very uh, closely because – this is this is good science, you know, and again, being science, it means that this is not the end of it. If if just a few studies have been done, that means that there will be more that will come to be done. All right. And of course, again, assuming that I'm reading this correctly, and, uh, folks, if you read the study that we'll include in the show notes or Dan, if you're out there and you're hearing me talk and I'm yeah. wrong, let me know. Please correct us. Um, but I do think it's interesting because it says, hey, you know, this is. You know, I mean, this really, to my mind, speaks more to the importance of good quality malt for what the compounds and flavors are that you're going to have at the end of the boil, right? Right. So I'd also be really curious to see what would happen if you do do an extended boil. Like, you know, I always talk about the the stupid trick that I do with, like, Scottish ales and, and other things where I want to kind of get a big increased malt, malt presence doing that one gallon to a quart boil. And see, you know, I would love to know if I'm actually getting anything out of that other than maybe just increasing concentration of existing compounds. Yeah, I, I think, I, you know, I don't know about Maillard reactions, but I would say that you're definitely getting increased flavor. I, I once made a beer to guard, and since Paula was gone for the weekend, I did a 12-hour boil on it. And, you know, it, it was very nice, had a great flavor to it. But now I'm wondering, hmm, did I actually create those Maillard compounds or were they already there and I just made them more noticeable? Yep. And the other thing I thought was interesting in the study, kind of as a side compound to this, so not only were they looking at what was in the wort, but they were also looking at what was in the trube, right? And seeing what got dragged into the trube from the, these boils and see whether or not there was any sort of relation between the compounds that were coming in versus the color of the malts and all that sort of fun stuff. And the thing that jumped out at me was the fact that like when they did the mixed warts that had a portion of roasted malt in it or black malt in it, that they saw in the trube lower protein counts, but they were kind of saying, uh, we believe that's because of the way the, the amount of protein in the, in the roasted malts. And again, assuming I'm reading that correctly, um, but what was really interesting was that in those hot troops measured from warts made with roasted malt in it, there was actually more hot troop in those malts. They were precipitating more material in the warts that had the darker malts in it. And their analysis was showing that it wasn't more protein as much as it was like more kind of cruder materials. And so the one thing I put into my mind is, is this yet another one of those things where, you know, there's always been the... um the the old brewer's tale of, oh, well, if you want to do something that helps your oxidation and your age of your beer, a little bit of dark malt in the beer, right? Um, I try to remember, I think, didn't Charlie Papazian have that in one of his books? 
Yeah, he he definitely did. I've seen it other places too, but I'm pretty sure Charlie talked about it. And so when I read that, what it made me think was, well, is there actually something to the old brewer's tale? Because you are precipitating more sort of gunk out of the wort with with a little bit of roasted malt. The, the authors are not drawing that conclusion. That's just me looking at that and going, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the way it should be, you know? Yeah. Um, but again, we'll include a link to the study. Uh, I encourage everybody to read it and I encourage everybody to, t- to take a look and read the analysis and see what they can see. And uh, I'd love to have a conversation about this because to me, it's interesting and I don't think yeah. anybody's ever done this sort of study before. So good. Yeah. Uh, re- read the study and then please, uh, give us your thoughts on it. All right. Well, that's enough librarying, I think. Yeah, let's get down to what it's all about, which is brewing. We're going to head over to the brewery and talk to you guys about what we've been brewing lately. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Yakima Chief Hops has the tools for your homebrew hop playbook. From classic favorites to the next exciting hop product out of the YCH R&D Lab. Partnering with growers and brewers to create a robust hop supply chain from propagation to pint, YCH is the source for exciting experimental hop varieties. Explore new flavors and aromas with HBC 586, which provides an immense fruit medley aroma including mango, citrus, and herbal notes. Get creative with HBC 630, overflowing with tropical citrus flavors that can only be described as fruity and fortified with sophisticated woody notes. Or discover new takes on your favorite recipes with HBC 638, brimming with citrus and tropical aromas with hints of sweet aromatic, herbal, and stone fruit. Learn more at yakimachief.com. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. The American Homebrewers Association invites you to celebrate the 24th annual Learn to Homebrew Day on Saturday, November 5th. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to download the official recipe for a small batch hoppy amber ale. Find a homebrew supply shop and dust off your homebrewing skills with how-to videos. Plus, you'll get a promo code for $5 off an annual AHA membership when you make a pledge to participate in Learn Homebrew Day. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to get $5 off when you make the Big Brew Pledge by November 8th, Welcome to the brewery. We're surrounded by gleaming stainless steel and bubbling airlocks, and we're going to talk to you about what we've been brewing, and Drew has more to talk about, so he gets to go first. Yeah, and actually, I have two things to talk about, and one of which is, you, I realized I never told you guys about the brew day for the Mild Cream Saison, you know, aka the Malted Corn Grisette, 
And that was my first brew on my new G40. So the garage that I'm standing in now has been renovated. I put 220-volt power in, so yay, I can finally run a big boy electric system. And um, everything about the G40 went great. The only errors were user error, which is the way it should be. <laughs> well, it's the first time on a new system, too. Right, and actually also the first time I brewed since April. And as I always remind people, the best way to become a better brewer is to brew, not just because you get more experience doing it, but because it builds that muscle memory. Um, and so I find that every time I take a break, like the first brew back is always inevitably interesting. Um, and this one was no different. But just to give you a, a reminder, the recipe for this was seven pounds of Hana malt. You know, that I ended up going with the crisp Hana malt, the original Pilsner malt, so to speak. Which actually mm-hmm. you'll hear about in the lounge too. Um, and three, uh, did seven pounds of that and I did three pounds of the Sugar Creek, uh, Boone County white malted corn. And that was it for the, the mash. Uh, it was originally supposed to be a 1040 beer, ended up being a 1044 beer. So I'm not going to argue too much with that. And then it was just bittered with a half ounce of Magnum for 60 minutes and a half ounce of Willamette for another 10 minutes. You know, just to give a little bit of hop character around over there. Fermented with the Imperial Rustic, which is a Blausey strain, right? So very, very much in line with Y-East 3726 uh, Farmhouse. And uh, then the important step, and this will go into the quick tip too, is uh, my tip is don't mess up the amount of sparge water that you use. <laughs> so in this particular batch, I had the G40 brewing the regular beer. And I had my G30 pressed into duty as my hot liquor tank. And I had to do that because the mash and boil I've been using for years as my hot liquor tank, I had to cut the plug off of it because it fused to the extension cord at one point. Oh, oh. Yeah, I was actually more upset about losing the extension cord than losing the uh, <laughs> the mash and boil plug. You know, uh, technically, you really shouldn't be using an extension cord with those at all. Yes, I know. But it's a nice heavy gauge extension cord. It's, you know... It, it it does the trick. I wasn't I wasn't running it wasn't running a cheapo extension cord on this. It just something happened. I think maybe the plug wasn't seated all the way, and it ended up melting part of the plastic, infusing the the mash and boil plug to the extension cord. Uh, meanwhile, now the mash and boil has a brand new GFI plug on it. So whatever. Um. So, but I had my G30 going as my HLT. Had everything all nice and set, and it was all wonderful, and I was pumping water into a pitcher and all that and doing everything. And I thought I was tracking my sparge on the G40 panel, right? So if you've never used a grandfather, mm-hmm. when you hit the sparge step, if you've loaded in a recipe and aren't doing things manually, it will come back and say, please make sure now to sparge with 3.75 gallons of water. And every time you add water to it, you click on the up button, it tracks another, I think, what, quarter gallon? It doesn't have quarter gallon increments. Uh, and yeah, we'll track that way. Now I'm pretty good about that usually, uh, except for this time I didn't, I accidentally added an extra gallon of water. <laughs> I've done that once, uh, you know, and it's, if you're on a propane system and you just crank the burner up, but uh, on an electric system, it, it only goes so high. Yeah. Well, and so what I ended up doing was you remember last time we had talked, Hey, you know, set, set your boil back down to 80, right? 80, put the heat at 80%. Uh, I left it on full full power, and I ran for two hours instead of the hour I was going to, and blew the uh, blew across the top of the kettle with a fan. 
just to, <laughs> just to encourage some extra evaporation. I ended up, I did end up getting down to my target volume and, uh, again, hit 1044 instead of 1040. The beer has been bubbling away and it's just about done. Uh, I'm going to take a taste of it before I decide whether or not I'm going to dry hop it with the additional bit of Willamette that I have. Um, it was a bit of a, don't know, might do it, might not, you know? Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, overall, not too bad. Uh, although I did also find a random piece of cardboard on the grandfather I'd forgotten to get rid of. Um, <laughs> I did that the first time I used mine too. It, it, was it the one on the, on the bottom of the, uh, the mash basket? Uh, I think that that was it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 that one was hidden. Um, but that, that was my very first batch on the G40 went like gangbusters, highly recommended. And the other one, which I'm going to, which I'm actually brewing right now, the water's heating up for is what I'm calling my uh, incognito American bitter. And this one, you, you all remember we talked about, Hey, you know, they now have homebrew sizes of incognito, which is that hop slurry sludge, not an extract, but not, you know, full hop product. Um, and I got my hands on some Citra Mosaic and I decided, well, everybody's going to make an IPA with this stuff. Why don't I do something different? Because that's me. And so I'm going to do an American style bitter. And what I mean by that, because I've just made a, a bunch of people go, what? I mean, look, it's basically a session strength American paleo back off. Yeah. Right. Um, but it is going to be crisp Maris Otter number 19. You know, the floor malted uh, Maris Otter that we, mm-hmm. that we talked about before and eight and a half pounds. And that's it. Nothing else. Uh, and it's going to end up being about a 1030 gate, 1040 beer. Uh, you, you all may notice a theme in my brewing recently. Uh, but 1038, 1040 beer, trying to hit this one at about, you know, somewhere between like three, eight, four percent. Um, and just the Maris Otter. And then the only hop addition that I'm going to do, oh, and I'm not doing any, uh, any water salt additions. I'm not going to add any gypsum or any, uh, chloride. I'm just going to ride with what my water is along with acid adjustments. Um, and removing chloramine, always remove the chloramine. No kettle additions of hops. And the only thing I'm going to do is I'm going to add this incognito. It's 20 gram bottle, which I think they say is equivalent to four or five ounces of, of hops. And add that into a whirlpool just off the boil for 20 minutes. And from the calculations I've got, that should give me somewhere around 35 to 40 IBUs. So we'll keep it really nice and bitter. <laughs> but <I'm, laughs> yeah. But I'm also hoping not like, not tea and tannic light because it's now the sludge product. Um, and then I'm going to ferment it with Denny's favorite yeast that isn't Denny's favorite yeast, which is the BRY 97. Cool. And, you know, ferment that along. I'm not going to do any dry hopping with it. I'm not going to do anything else. I just want to try these two things together, the Maris Otter and the, the hop sludge, the incognito, and see what I get out the other side. Again, my whole plan is to get something that's kind of a an American version of a bitter. Um and we'll see just how well I do. I do have some concerns that might be a little too bitter, but oh well, I'll live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it it may be, but so what? That's what it's all about when you're experimenting with with a new recipe, right? Right. And you remember earlier you had said when we were talking about the West Ghost, how hey, look, you know, they have carapils in there. Um, in this particular case, you'll notice I'm not doing any carapils, but that's largely because I figured the floor malted Maris Otter will have enough back end left to it that, yeah. I don't, that I'm not going to worry about it too much. 
I think that that's a, a reasonable thing to assume. Yep. And so otherwise, this will be fun. I suspect that this will be done in about two weeks. And if I'm not being lazy and I can get off my butt, I'll send you a couple bottles of both so that you can try them. And tell oh, people great. What, tell people whether or not I can know how to brew. <laughs> and I'll send you some of mine once it finishes up. There we go. Speaking of which. Uh, yeah. A few weeks back, I was talking about how I was going to uh, make an homage to Ublon Schoof. Uh, Schoof's kind of Belgian IPA. Found a great looking recipe for it from a guy who really seems to know what he's doing. So I thought I'd give it a try. And I've been... Uh, yeah, okay, I admit it. I've been stealing samples as it goes. Uh, I, I, that's wait, wait, why I brew. Uh, is it really yeah. stealing if it's your beer? Well, no, it, it's like, you know, drink it now, drink it later. Uh, but uh, I had one, oh, maybe about a week and a half ago, and it was uh, showing promise flavor-wise, but still very cloudy. Uh, I uh, dropped the temp down to 37 Fahrenheit and uh, tried another sample about three days ago, and it was starting to clear up, but still cloudier than I would have liked. A lot of stuff uh, still in suspension that uh, was making it a little bit uh, astringent. Mm -hmm. So uh, what can I do? I, I'm curious. Uh, I went out and stole another sample today, and uh, it's it's clearing very nicely now. Not completely clear, but it, it's it's getting there. And uh, later this afternoon, when I'm ready for a 9.8% beer, I'll be trying that. Yeah, I was going to say, that's definitely a, a one-ish type of beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe two. But yeah, I mean, it, it started at uh, 1081 and finished up at 10.06, I believe. So I got I got great attenuation on it. Uh, the good old shaken, not stirred starter did a great job, although I, uh, when I'm making a really high-gravity beer like that, if I don't have slurry from a previous batch to use, I actually use two packs of yeast in a quart of wort for my uh, shaken, not stirred starter. Might give Mark... Uh, chills to know that i was abusing the process like that but it seems to work really well for me uh thing took off like geez within 10 hours or so and i guess i sent you a video the next day of the airlock just going crazy huh yep it certainly was yeah so so anyway i'm 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 real happy with uh, the attenuation i did one thing a little bit different than i normally do with beers that use sugar i added the sugar at the end uh, I don't know if that made any difference or not. I always thought that it didn't, uh, which is why I've always put it in early. Mm -hmm. But this time it went in at the end, so that's just the way it is. You mean at the end of the boil? End of the boil, yeah. With I put it in. Normally I put it in at the beginning of the boil just so I don't forget it, and it's in there, and that way it uh, gives me the gravity that my hop utilization is uh, expecting to have. Right. And this time it's just like... Screw it. I'm not going to do it. So I added the sugar in the last five minutes of the boil. I've heard people say, oh, you know, if you put the sugar in early, it caramelizes it and you won't get full uh, full attenuation. And, you know, we've, we've called bull on that a number of times. Well, so. I think the I think the study that we were just talking about also adds adds more nails to that. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, like you, I used the Hana Pils malt, but I did a very very intense mash schedule on it. I uh, started at one thirty one for about fifteen minutes, then I did I think it was like one forty five, one forty eight for ninety minutes, 
and then went up to, uh, I think it was like 158 for another 45 minutes. So I think, if anything, it was the extended MASH schedule that really uh, gave me that uh, amazing attenuation because, uh, you know, as we all know, you may get conversion in 15 or 20 minutes, but you'll get more breakdown if you let it go longer. So that's what I did. Well, and that's like, you know, on the the Grisette, I did that. We remember we talked the your kind of hawkersy type mash versus mm-hmm. uh, versus the pay mash, and I did the pay mash on this one uh, because right. yeah, it's the the Hannibal, which needs a little extra kick in the pants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the guys at Crisp were even talking about decoction, but there's no way I was going to be doing that. <laughs> no, thank you. All right, so that's the beers that we've made. Tell us what you've made. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. So now we're going to go talk about beers that people made a long, long time ago, before even I was born. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Fall brewing is defined by fresh hops, beer fests, and creative fermentations. Y-Yeast's latest release, Flannel Fest, offers up two yeast strains and a wild and sour blend for your seasonal brews. 2247 European Lager produces a clean, dry, and crisp profile often found in aggressively hopped lagers, while 2487 Hellebach Lager is known for creating the rich, full-bodied, and complex flavor profile of German beers. Our exclusive 9097 Old Ale Blend will develop the favored pie cherry notes and sourness from Brett in an easy-to-use mixed culture. This option is ideal for those getting started with Brett and beer aging for darker beers. Head over to whyeastlab.com for our latest advice about brewing with these strains, available now through the end of December. Visit store.whyeastlab.com for new Whyeast merch. Let's get brewing. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. Drew got wind of, uh, a very interesting event going on in Colonial Williamsburg called Ales Through History, and he got in touch with Frank Clark to talk about it. Uh, I wasn't there that day, so I don't know much about what they talked about, so I'll let Drew fill you in. Yeah, prepare yourself for nerdery. And I say that more so than normal because, you know, way back in the day when I was deciding on what I wanted to do with my life, what sort of college I was going to go to, where I, you know, what I was going to do. Uh, to be a, I don't know, a reasonable adult human being or something. Uh, I didn't have the option that Denny did to become rock and roll. Uh, but <laughs> I did have the choice between either going and becoming an engineer, which is what I did do, uh, or going and studying American history, which was my other big passion. And so caught wind of this, yes, uh, via Martin Cornell's uh, social feeds. Martin's going to speak at this event. I reached out to the people of Colonial Williamsburg, and they hooked me up with Frank Clark, who is kind of the the head of the Foodways program at Colonial Williamsburg. And Foodways is, I mean, it's basically a way of trying to explore 
the history and what we know about how people cooked, how people interact with food. And yes, it also includes beer, wine, cider, and all that sort of fun stuff. So Frank, who's been there at Colonial Williamsburg for over 30 years, is also a home brewer. So this whole conference is going to be all about you know, beer as seen through history, all the way from ancient times, Tudor times, colonial times, and all the way up to World War One. And it's going to be both in person and available virtually. So if you can't make it to Colonial Williamsburg, you can still attend, which is what I'm going to do. And I can't wait to see what they're going to talk about. But in the meanwhile, sit back and prepare for Frank and I to sort of go all over the place. Uh, my name is Frank Clark, and I'm the Master of Historic Foodways or Historic Food Programs at Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, it's kind of a fabulous title, uh, but uh, basically what we try and do in Historic Foodways is recreate the foods and beverages of 18th century Virginia and England. Uh, and so that's how I started off. Uh, in beer, basically, at right the same time I got that job and became an apprentice in Foodways, uh, we actually needed to have a uh, research project as part of our apprenticeship. And I decided uh, at about that time I received a home brewing kit from my brother-in-law and uh, decided, hey, uh, why don't I study 18th century beer and brewing? Uh, and so I began to research and look into that field and about 1994, and I uh, have been doing it uh, ever since as much as I can. My daily job really involves food, uh, operating the kitchen at the governor's palace and demonstrating the cooking of the 18th century. But uh, my, my fun part, funnest part of the job, I should say, uh, is is the brewing, which we do periodically in the spring and fall. Uh, we've got one coming up on Sunday, actually. Uh, but uh, we get to recreate some of the 18th century uh, small batch beers uh, in the palace and talk about brewing uh, and demonstrate it for the public, which is a lot of fun because a lot of people really don't know what beer is and how it's made. And so uh, spreading that knowledge is, is, I think, useful too. Well, and I have to ask, what led you to the unusual career of working at Colonial Williamsburg, which is kind of a living history museum, right? Well, I, it, it really is. It's America's largest uh, outdoor living history museum, in fact. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a native. So I lived here in Williamsburg. My mother worked for Colonial Williamsburg for 30-odd years, uh, and uh, I grew up here uh, playing in the historic area and, and having fun. And then when I was in college, I started working there in the summers because it was a great summer job. I could come in, work come on the holidays and work and, and make some money and we go back to school. Uh, so it, it was something I started doing as I was in college. And when I got out of college, uh, eventually started doing that as well. The food thing was kind of a, a an accident. Uh, I was working originally doing uh, school tours. And uh, in the summertime, we didn't have school tours uh, very often. So they sort of sent us to the trade shops to uh, uh, help out in the summer for them. Uh, and they sent me to the kitchen and I uh, liked it and went back again and I liked it and full-time job came up and I've been doing it since. So it's something that I just sort of stumbled into. Uh, and then uh, from that also stumbled into beer. Well, and as you said, you know, okay, so you had to have a research project. And it's kind of tempting to think like, you know, when you see the pictures and the videos of Colonial Williamsburg, it seems like, oh, you know, that's a lot of play acting type stuff. But it sounds like, I mean, there is a vital research component back there as well. And I know there's archaeology and all that sort of fun stuff happening in the area. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we can't just make stuff up. Uh, you know, we, we really do have to to rely on on the 
the research that has gone on. And, and, and in our case, in food, we're super lucky because a lot of this stuff was published as cookbooks in the 18th century. Uh, so we have literally access to, to hundreds, if not thousands, of 18th century uh, publications that are, uh, you know, cookbooks. And so they have the recipes in them. Uh, there are fewer brewing manuals, but the same thing happened to some degree with beer in this period. And there were a number of manuals written typically by ex-brewery uh, employees uh, that, uh, that taught you how to brew at home and how to make porter and all these other styles and, and and that sort of thing and so those are what I used really as the basis for the the research that uh, we went into uh, uh, as we started looking at it and yeah there's a great deal of, of it, I mean there's constant research we have the archaeological resources we have documentary resources we have uh, uh, you know all sorts of options as to how to get information uh, unfortunately that's true especially only of of the very wealthy uh, not so much true when you get into the lives of the enslaved and the normal everyday average Virginian 200 years ago because those folks are not documenting their lives in the same way so uh, there there has to be different approaches one, one sort of reach into those areas. Yeah, you know, it reminds me, like, if you go and you look on Google Books, there's a couple of historical brewing books and cookbooks. I, I think you can find, was it Mrs. Beeson's is, like, one of the big cookbooks? Um, Mrs. Beeson's was a, a very popular yeah. cookbook in England through the, through the 19th century. Uh, we use her predecessor a lot, a lady named Hannah Glass. Uh, she published The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy in 1747, and she was kind of the uh, 18th century version of Mrs. Beaton or uh, Betty Crocker uh, or that sort of thing. This kind of uh, one of the most popular uh, 18th century cookbooks. Yeah, and to your point about the, you know, sort of the wealthy being better recorded, I know like a couple of the brewing manuals I've seen are all like, you know, you know how to maintain a country estate. You know, it's all, you know, that sort of thing. And, and brewing is a big part of that. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's kind of where, uh, we started brewing at the palace because servants in this period are typically given a beer allowance. Uh, English servants are. Uh, and, uh, that's more than likely why they're brewing in the household. When we look at the accounts of the butler, his, one of his entries is, uh, hops and yeast for brewing. Uh, and that beer is, is not going to the governor's table. He has 1,100 bottles of English ale down in the cellar. Uh, so he, he really doesn't need a, a home-brewed uh, what was more than likely a molasses beer uh, rather than an, a, a, a grain beer. Uh, in a lot of cases in Virginia in this period, we're substituting uh, barley uh, for or molasses for barley. Uh, and so you see uh, a, a concoction they call molasses beer, which is uh, made from wheat bran uh, that you boil in the water with the hops and then you add molasses to that and boil that and then ferment that, strain it all out and ferment it. And you know, it's actually surprisingly beer-like. Uh, if you've done it right, uh, it, it tastes a lot like beer. Uh, and at that point, it was much cheaper uh, to produce it that way than to do the grain. And it's also quicker. <laughs> immensely quicker. Uh, if you fully follow the English recipe of mashing three times and boiling three times, making three beers, uh, you're looking at about a 16 to 18 hour brew day. Uh, whereas you can whip up a batch of molasses beer in about half hour to 45 minutes. Uh, so if, if most people who were brewing in, in 18th century Virginia were housewives in many cases, they have plenty of other things to do. Uh, they would much rather make their beer in an hour than in a 16. 
Yeah, it's kind of like the difference between brewing a beer nowadays and making a mead. It's the same general yeah, concept. Or, or even from extract brewing to all-grain brewing for home brewers, you know, because uh, uh, they're they're really opening the can and pouring in the sugar, uh, much like you would in the case of an extract brew. Uh, so it's, it's a lot less equipment, less work, uh, and less time. Well, and before we get further into that, because I know you and I are going to probably rat hole pretty quickly on this because nerdery will nerd. Um, let's remind people about the, the conference that's coming up, uh, Ales Through History. Uh, what, Ales Through the Ages, actually. Ales Through the Ages. Oops. Ales Through the Ages, yeah. Sorry. All right, no worries. So let's remind people, it's Ales Through the Ages, and it's November 11th through the 13th, I think? That's right. And it's available uh, in person uh, as an event here at Colonial Williamsburg uh, and also online uh, as a virtual version. And as we were talking at the front, you know, you got a whole bunch of speakers, lots of uh, programming to be covered. And if I remember correctly, just from looking through the schedule, it looks like it's covering the breadth of beer brewing from the 1700s all the way up to World War One, I believe. Right. We're actually going even a little further back. We're going to have some uh, a talk on Tudor brewing oh. uh, by my friend Mark Meltonville, an English food historian who uh, did a wonderful project in Ireland uh, recreating a Tudor, Tudor brewing. Uh, and then Dr. Travis Rupp from uh, 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 Colorado is going to be talking about uh, – more ancient beers and, and the origins of some of those. So uh, we, we're going to go even further back than the 1700s. Uh, and I think Ron is going to sort of top us out at, at World War I uh, with his talk into the more modern times and such. Well, and it'll be really curious to see because, I mean, obviously lots of changes, particularly I'm, I kind of think of that period of the colonial period as being about the time when we start to see an inflection, right, as we get into the later colonial period. You know, at least in the UK, you know, starting to see more and more science being applied and more things kind of becoming a process and industrialized. <laughs> but I mean, absolutely. My- and, and that really does affect uh, the beers uh, as well. I mean, if you look at a beer like Porter in uh, 1720s, when it's first being uh, sort of specialized out of other beers, uh, it's it's a completely different grain brill and and flavor and, and product than it will be in, in 1780 or 1790 uh, because of that industrialization. So there there is a huge change in, in even uh, beer styles and beer flavors and, and the brewing industries uh, as things like the thermometer and the hydrometer and, and other very useful technological advances come along. Uh, you know, uh, there, there's a grasp improvement in, in the quality of beer during this period. Too. Yeah, I always try to remind people that beer has had a – an amazing impact on the world of science in a way that a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, sure. Uh, because uh, <laughs> let me tell you, reading 18th century brewing manuals makes that pretty clear. Uh, but I, I like to joke that uh, um, I'm the perfect 18th century brewer because my science is so lousy that I fit right into their uh, understanding of science. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not a, a modern science person uh, particularly, but uh, I'm able to pick up enough to, to know what I should and shouldn't be doing. But, you know, if I'm following the recipes, sometimes I'm going to do things that I, I shouldn't be doing because they tell you to do them. Uh, and, and you have to see what that effect is and, and whether it's really that bad an idea or not. Or, or whether you notice as much as you might or, or what, you know, so that's part of the process, too, is to try and uh, uh, recreate uh, 
the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I guess you would say. Well, and it's true because, well, I mean, actually the first thing I will say is that like going back and looking at old recipe books and even the, the brewing books, if you're coming at it from a point of view of like how we think about recipes today, um, mm-hmm. boy, those are confusing. <laughs> they, they, they feel much more like the uh, the recipe food blogs that you read today where you have to you know dig through three pages of biography before you actually get to something that amounts to a recipe. But even back then, it's it's more narrative than what we would think of. Oh, yeah, it's 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 a three page long paragraph. That, that tells you how to how to make the beer uh, and and all that and and really gives very little in the way of specifics because you know most of the things we would consider important today as modern home brewers things like you know uh, malt type uh, hop variety uh, yeast types uh, these things you know are are, are not listed and described because it's clearly understood that those things are whatever you got uh, and and. I think, you know, one of the first things you have to do is sort of step back from the modern mentality of industrialized food palate, as I like to call it, uh, because you are so used to, as a modern person, the beer always tasting the same. When I buy a Sam Adams, it tastes like a Sam Adams. When I buy a Budweiser, it tastes like a Budweiser. We would not accept those breweries having a different flavor and and some much worse than others uh every time you went to them you know that's just a a modern consumer expectation that that things be standardized and and that they be repeatable and and taste the way they're supposed to uh, so that you become used to it and and 200 years ago your brewer every batch he makes is going to have different flavors the hops are going to be either fresh from the harvest or uh very stale uh, uh, you know nine months later uh the yeast might be a, a clean fresh strain or it might be 10 different strains with, with some Britannomyces and some other even more dangerous stuff floating around in it you know it, it, it's just there's no super consistency like we can do today. And and I think that's where science, of course, has probably helped the most is, is being able to, to allow us to do that kind of thing, to adjust for water variations and hop variations and, uh, you know, crop variations and all those kinds of things that, that an 18th century brewer had no control over and, and really, in many cases, no knowledge of either. Yeah. Well, and so to dig a little bit more, uh, one of my ongoing jokes is that, uh, particularly because of people like Ron and, and Martin, you know, they've made it really hard to tell tall tales anymore about beer sure. because uh, beer is beer history is generally poor history, as as the joke goes. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of stories made up by brewers to tell people who are drinking their beer are made up by drinkers to to tell each other while they're having beers. So looking back at this period and the, and the history that you know and the history that you sort of live in uh, and demonstrate to people, are there myths that people have about beer that, of this time or these processes that they need to kind of get out of their heads? Well, the one we've always been fighting for years is the whole beer. They drank beer because it was safer than water. Right. Uh, and and that is, that is a, a really – modernization of some things that were possibly true but not really thought of in the same way. Uh, the reason people ate, drank, or drank beer in the 18th century it seems, in, in my opinion, to be much more related to the nutritional value of the beer than the safety from bad water of the beer. 
uh, you know, people talk about beer as wholesome, nutritious, and and the calories that it provides uh, much more so than they talk about. Oh, we've taken this stinking water and we've turned it into lovely beer. Uh, and and in most cases, you know, brewers in this period actually have a fairly good understanding of some basics of water chemistry. They know the difference between hard and soft waters. They match the darker grains with the softer waters. They match the paler grains with the harder waters. Uh, and so you see them, them starting to associate and, and make some sort of water chemistry decisions. They also know where to get the source, you know, to find the spring rather than the Tim's, uh, you know, although Apparently, some of them were using the Tims uh, in this period as well. But uh, but they're also, you know, doing things uh, to be sure that they're getting a, a better quality water than maybe the average person in a city would have available to them. Uh, so in, in that sense, uh, people also kind of trusted that the brewers are new knew where the best water was and were using the best water uh, in, in making their product uh, as well, or at least they would patronize those that they thought were doing so. Uh, and so it, in, in their mind, there's no bacterial theory. Hmm. So, so they don't look at water like we do and think, oh, there could be germs or bacteria in there that might be harmful to me. They understand that while water can convey epidemics and can be very dangerous in city situations, but they do not understand the mechanism of it. And, and they don't really fully understand that boiling uh, helps to destroy that. Uh, you know, so they're, they're not really thinking of beer in, in terms of, oh, it's so much safer. Uh, it, it's just, oh, it's so much more fun. A and and it's more nutritious. B uh, and so you know you got to drink water. Everybody did. It, it's first off, beer's never been free. Uh, water could be. Uh, so you know, in that sense, you're also drinking water because you can't afford to drink nothing but beer all the time. It's you know, somewhat costly. Uh, so th there's always a, a necessary uh, consumption of water that's going on uh, in the background, so to speak. Uh, in addition to that, there's a lot more beer. Well, and to the point that you made about food pallets and using what you had on hand, I mean, I think the other thing people always have to realize is that in this day and age when I can go and drink a soda, I can make myself tea, I can make myself, you know, I, I can go pick up any one of a hundred flavored beverages across the street from me. You know, back Absolutely. then, back then they didn't have that. So beer also had the the added advantage of also being, hey, look, that's different than water and tasty. <laughs> yeah. And, and cheap. Uh, it, the most affordable beverage made by man. So, uh, in that sense, it's, it's also, you know, available because you can afford it. That and cider are going to be the beverages that the, the, the poor and the middling sort are, are going to consume because that's what they can afford. Tea and chocolate and coffee. These things are outrageously costly for someone like that. I mean, that's a, a week's salary for a pound of chocolate, uh, in this period. Uh, you're not going to spend your whole paycheck on a pound of chocolate. Uh, you know, whereas you could get, you know, probably a barrel of beer for about that same amount of money. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a matter of economics too. Yeah. You know, years ago when I was doing, um, I, I wrote a book about making hard cider. I was actually surprised at the time to dig in and realize that cider was actually by far and away, like the most popular alcoholic beverage for like drinking, drinking purposes uh, mm -hmm. in, in the colonies at the time. Because the other thing I'd always learned was that, and you kind of alluded to it with the molasses beer was that, getting sort of what we would consider to be good beer ingredients, you know, like good 
malted barley, good hops and everything else was a little bit more of a challenge. Yeah, in fact, the, the, the early descriptions of the state of Virginia, there's a, a lovely one written in the early part of the uh, 18th century, which says, you know, it, it, it would would sow the best malt in the world, uh, except for want of malt houses. Uh, so they're, they're just not making the malt here. And uh, it, it isn't uh, that you couldn't do it. It's just that, that we weren't. Uh, and then importing those ingredients made it more expensive, first off, and, and also uh, uh, generally not as in good condition uh, by the time they arrive after six months in the hold of a, a wooden ship, you know. Uh, so uh, that's that's the other thing is that, you know, today we can we can pressure or seal these ingredients and pack our hops in a freezer and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. And, and these hops are hanging in a sack in somebody's attic, you know. Uh, so they're going to be having a very different flavor and six months than they did, you know, when they were harvested. Oddly enough, if listeners go back and listen to the whole series on Lambic being produced down in San Diego, I just did. Absolutely. Yeah. They had hops stored up in the attic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and they need to. I mean, if you're going to make that beer, uh, you want a two or three-year-old hop that is, you know, thoroughly cheesed as such. Uh, and so, it's you know, it's very different from, um, uh, you know, what we expect in, in our, our beer ingredients today. So now you had mentioned earlier, hey, you know, the butler at the uh, the colonel's or the governor's mansion would have, you know, supplies for making his own beer. And meanwhile, the the governor himself had beer down in the cellar. I'm was that sort of a, a distinction that we'd see where you know the more upper upper class would have the have beer imported as opposed to a locally made product or. Yeah, typically, yeah, in this period, yeah, they're going to import their English goods are always the finest. <laughs> or ever the finest, as the saying goes. Uh, so yeah, they would they would consider that the better quality, especially something like porter. Uh, by the 1770s, the top ten porter brewers of London are producing about 370,000 barrels of porter a year, uh, and and that kind of it's going all over the world. It's you know going to the court of Russia, it's going to Philadelphia, it's going to Williamsburg. Uh, it's going, you know, to, to anyone who admires it as such. Uh, and, and really production of that does not start up until a little later here, uh, in America. Yeah. And, and then let's not also forget the generous quantities of Madeira and, uh, Claret they've drank. Oh, sure. And, and, and that's, that's actually, there are nine pipes of Madeira in the cellar, uh, and they have, uh, what, 280 gallons in a pipe. So, uh, He's got quite a bit of material. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, governor is getting good English goods imported. Uh, we know barley malt is being, you know, is expensive to bring across. And so, I'm I'm going to guess at the time because we're talking about industrialization happening later. Beer at this point still falls into that category, mostly homebrewed, right? It's just another kitchen activity. Yeah, typically, probably for for many housewives, that was the case. They were also making the beer for their household because they're also making the yeast for their household. Mm-hmm. Uh, their bread is going to be leavened with the same yeast that's in the brew. It's 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 more difficult to do that these days with modern specialized yeast for brewing. Uh, they don't leaven bread nearly as well as as what folks had at the time. So uh, that was the other connection from home brewing is that it's also connected to baking uh and and all brewing and baking 
has, has always been connected uh, throughout history. And, and so uh, as a housewife making their own beer, they're doing that. In the wealthy households here in the colonies, uh, typically it's going to be enslaved folks who are doing the work. Uh, and those households that can afford to, to own enslaved people, uh, they're going to be doing that work. It's going to bruise hot, heavy work. There's lots of buckets of water to be carried and fires to be tended and stuff to be moved and grain to be handled and all that other stuff. So, uh, it's, it's very strenuous kind of labor. And, uh, you know, in many cases, they're having their enslaved people trained uh, in, in professionally in brewing. Uh, that's what Jefferson does. He has uh, uh, Hemings uh, trained in, in brewing by a ship's captain uh, who comes uh, a couple of times uh, to Mount to Monticello and, and does the training there. Yeah, I'm trying to remember that was uh, Peter Hemings, right? That's correct. And uh, related to the now uh, known Sally Hemings. And his brother James, who's the cook, uh, who's uh, as well. So that's uh, uh, yeah, all connected together. Right, and well, and I, I remember. I want to say it was a decade ago, but of course, I know time gets funny as you get older. Uh, when they started talking about the brewery and the distillery uh, at Mount Vernon, uh, and then that also started to reveal some of the history of uh, the enslaved people brewing there for for Washington Company. Yeah, and distilling. Yeah, absolutely. There were there's at least four or five enslaved uh, folks who were uh, distilling there, really running the operation under uh, the supervision of, of James Anderson uh, there. Yeah, and now, but for the average household, I and mean, it's likely going to be your wife or your daughters who are brewing, right? Yeah, typically. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and you had mentioned, okay, so they're they're using the yeast culture both for baking and for brewing. I mean. Was this, I mean, there's a temptation in my mind to think that, hey, you know, it's kind of like a, almost like a sourdough idea. I am, was it that or were they starting with, you know, like somebody's culture, like, you know, getting farm from a, a bakery? Uh, they could have. Uh, and, and understand that inside every barrel of beer is also yeast mm-hmm. uh, or for that matter, every bottle of beer because none of these beers are pasteurized or sterilized. So, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of different sources for yeast should you run out. Uh, but typically, you know, you'll see the brewers or, or, or people like that who are selling that excess yeast as well. Uh, so you can go there and, and purchase your yeast from, from them. Well, and so that's a, that's a good following question. Then. I mean, so while we're talking about brewing being largely a homebrew activity, you know, or uh, another kitchen activity. Were there commercial breweries uh, during this period, you know, in the colonies? Oh, absolutely, especially up up north. Uh, as, as you get up to, to Philadelphia and beyond uh, into New England, there's a, a great deal of, of brewing, both commercially and at home. Uh, Virginia and the south are a, are a little slower, and it's mainly a climate thing. I mean, uh, you know, without refrigeration and and, and being able to control fermentation temperatures, uh, you run into some issues when you're trying to brew with Virginia in, in July and it's 98 degrees, 98 percent humidity. And, uh, you know that the yeast gets all crazy. Uh, so um, it's it's one of those things where the the South typically didn't 
develop as much of that. We're also, you know, much more uh, agriculturally based as well. Uh, and you see a lot more uh, brewing industry going on up in New England. Uh, there are a couple of attempts uh, at, at commercial breweries here in Virginia. One of them, uh, as Martin uh, Cornell has discovered, is probably the first brewer of porter, commercial brewer of porter in America. Uh, and that's a, a brewery up in Marlboro uh, in, the, in the 1760s that is uh, producing that. Yeah, you know, having grown up in Florida and having grown up in Florida during the period of air conditioning, if I had no air conditioning, <laughs> I would uh, I would not be willing to brew. No chance. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I lived in Virginia until I was 10 without air conditioning, so I, it, it was, uh, you know, you, you get used to it, but uh, it, it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no thanks. No, I wonder, I wonder, like, I know in at least in medieval England, and I don't know about up until this period of time because I've never read about it, um, that like you could see situations where households may have excess beer and they were selling it. Would that Was that a thing in the colonies as well? Uh, perhaps, but but they're going to have to get a license of some kind or another. Naturally. Uh, and, and, and especially true if they're running a tavern uh, or ordinary. Uh, they're, they're the city of Virginia or Williamsburg, in, in, in fact, the whole colony of Virginia, uh, is, is really very strict on that. And I, and I think all of them were because it was a big money maker, you know. So they were very carefully about controlling the licenses. And if they find, you know, taverns becoming problematic, you know, constant fighting or whatever, uh, they'll shut them down and, and revoke those licenses. And uh, if they found they're not selling legally uh, weighed uh, and measured uh, quantities, you know, legal pints and, and quarts, uh, they can also be shut down or lose their license for that. Uh, so uh, there, there's a very strict legal involvement in that. And commercial brewers uh, uh, almost always have to pay taxes. Uh, and, and in fact, at one point in England, uh, about a third of the crown's income came from beer taxes uh, in one form or another. So uh, it was a huge source of income. Oh, yeah. And it's true here in the U.S. I know that pre-World War One. Giant portion of the the federal government's uh, funding came from various vice taxes, I, and I do think it's kind of telling that. I mean, thinking back into into my history classes of yore, you know, like two of the first big tests of the U.S. government were things like the Whiskey Rebellion and what uh, Shays Rebellion. That was during the uh, that was during what 1789 or thereabouts. So yep. and both of them around alcohol taxes, or at least in yeah, part. basically, yeah. <laughs> Hey, look at that! Digging back into the into the gray stuff. Um, well, now I I wasn't sure when you just talked about uh, running a tavern. You know, taverns are naturally going to be a thing, right? Um, it sounded a little bit like was the beer being brewed on premises at the tavern then, or was it being? It it, it may have in some cases, but in in Williamsburg probably not so much. Uh, every tavern in our town had to have a price list. Uh, and mm -hmm. it had to be posted and it had to give a price and, and sort of origin of, of the product and the cost of it. Uh, and, and so they had to match that. And, and the price lists typically include, uh, Welsh ale, uh, Maryland ale, uh, Pennsylvania ale, Virginia beers, uh, as well. So they can come from 
from within the colonies or from England, uh, London Porter, you know, uh, all that sort of thing. Bristol beer. You see a lot of Bristol beer because Bristol's on the right side of England for shipping to America. Uh, it's actually much quicker trip, much faster. You don't have to mess with the Thames. Uh, boats can get stuck in the Thames for months because of the winds and things and currents and whatnot. It's a real pain. Uh, whereas the West Coast of Bristol area, it, it's a straight shot. And, and so you see a whole lot of beer coming here from there. Uh, and it's considered very, you know, good quality beers. Uh, and, and, improved by the sea journey and all that sort of thing. So uh, there's, there's a great deal of, of both imported and, and locally produced, especially up in New England. Well, and, okay, so we already talked a little bit about molasses beer, um, and we've danced around Porter and how Porter changes. I mean, would most of the beer back in this period of time, like the stuff coming in from professional breweries, would that be sort of Porter-ish? Or were there, or were there other beers that were being made? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Pale ale is going to start to really rocket towards the end of the 18th century. And, okay. and especially as Isinglass comes along and it starts to be used by the commercial brewers in England, uh, and you start to get good quality glassware being made in England that's clear and easy to see through, uh, then people want to see a nice sparkly beer in their glass not so much a big cloudy dark beer you know they want to see something that they can you know read a newspaper through or uh see the light through and and see how clear it is so uh, give me the <laughs> yeah the pale ales become more and more popular and really are going to knock quarter off the throne in in about 18 uh, 20s or so is the, the height of the porter production and at that point pale really just starts to take over and keeps going up until the point where porter was basically uh, a footnote uh, in the 60s and 70s yep. uh, so uh, it's it's kind of a uh, an interesting dichotomy and and I think part of that has to do with you know uh, how those beers look when they're being consumed you know and and, and some of the flavors that they're going to have to Right. And of course, that's also part of the reason why people talk about Pilsner rising up in the late 1800s when suddenly you sure. get you get cheap, clear glassware. Um, so let's walk through some of the brewing because you said, OK, hey, you're, you're brewing a couple times per year there at the at Williamsburg. What is the process look like in terms of something or in terms of how is it different than than what we do today right because i mean i assume there's a lot of the same basic steps right you gotta soak grain at you know at sort of like warm temperatures you gotta separate it right but so right and and that so basically the process is very similar except we do not sparge Okay. There's no sparging. Sparging seems to come from the Scots sometime about the 1830s. You start to see descriptions of it in the brewing manuals uh, as the Scottish method of brewing. Uh, but what the English are going to do is they're going to take all their malt and they're going to make a, a, a very stiff uh, um, or, or, or a mash out of it initially in a, in a big wooden tub, and then they're going to uh, cap it a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. Take some of the grain, about a third or a quarter of the grain, and pour it over the top after the mash has been stirred and made uh, to create basically a heat barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, to keep that mash temperature pretty much the same and to keep uh, the... Uh, the steam sealed in there, uh, and and then it'll sit for uh, that first mash for basically an hour, uh, and then it's going to be strained off, and then that liquid would be boiled with hops and would be made 
strong ale. The same grain would go back into the mash tub again at a slightly higher temperature for a two-hour mash. It would then be strained off and put into the kettle and boiled for two hours with hops to make what's called a table beer, uh, typically, or sometimes called ship's beer. Uh, and then that same grain going back into mash again for a third time for three hours. Uh, it will come out and be boiled again for three hours uh, to create small beer. Uh, the lower alcoholic version of mm-hmm. your beer. Uh, and so that's why this process takes 18 hours <laughs> is, is your, your mashing and, and, and sparging and boiling goes up with each mash. And, uh, it, it's actually extremely efficient from a home brewer's point of view. You're going to get every bit of sugar out of that grain. Uh, you know, much more so really than, than what we do now. Uh, but it's incredibly time and labor intensive. Uh, which is uh, quite likely why we no longer uh, do that uh, as as our brewing process today. Uh, so in that sense, it's it's um, a, a slightly different mash schedule than uh, we would have. But uh, the boiling, often the the hops are what they're going to do is simply run that wort off the mash through a sack of hops and then throw it in the kettle and boil it. Only one addition. They're not going to be three or four additions of hops. Really one addition, and then it might well be dry hopped after it's in the barrels later. Uh, and then uh, boiled and, and cooled and fermented. Well, and then a couple of things. So, I mean, that's very much, I mean, guile brewing, right? And I think well, and in, in many ways, yeah. And in fact, that's what we do in our program because no one is going to sit there with us for 16 <laughs> hours. We don't want to be there until four in the morning uh, brewing beer. Uh, we we mash twice and then we combine the both right. warts together and boil them as a part of guile. And that's yeah. what commercial brewers are doing in this period as well. So, uh, we, we sort of follow that process because it's, it is faster. Uh, and we could get that sort of done in, in about a six hour period, uh, as the demo. Well, and not to mention the fact that I mean, like when you're doing like full on party guile brewing, I mean, not only you're being more efficient, but then because you have multiple pulls, you can do, you can make multiple different beers out of one thing, but change your ratios around, which is very much like what uh, Fuller's does over in the UK. Uh, so you yeah. can get you can, you can be very efficient about creating multiple different types of beer. But yeah, I totally get why you guys don't want to sit there. Because the other thing is, I mean, people aren't thinking about. It, I mean, this is what this is over a wood fire, right? Yeah, Ron Pattinson claims that one of the breweries, sometime in about the 1820s or 1830s, only made one beer. Uh, I mean, it was all literally the same it's just that they, you know they they put more water in it for some and less water in it for others and, uh and and that's kind of what they did and, and and it might well be true i mean if ron's saying it i, I believe that he has the uh, yeah, historical sources I, quite true uh, quite true I, i'm sure it's true uh, no, but you, it's just an interesting approach that that uh, oh yeah. uh would, would take in that situation well as i've always like to remind people as we sit here and as beer nerds try and dissect styles and talk about the nuances between various different subclasses of say a bitter or something like that, you know, for the most part, commercial breweries didn't care about any of that sort of stuff and just went, okay, well we need a bitter or an X and an XX. All right, let's just do this and call it a day. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And, and in the, the earlier period in the 18th century period, it, it's often named by the cost too many. 
three penny, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and so it really had, uh, didn't have to be any particular, uh, uh color, uh, flavor, whatever. Uh, but it's cost is, is the important part. So one other question I had, I think you partially answered. You said, okay, it, 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 were they always like in order to do that separation, you know, the, the, the laundering, was it always like basically here we'll take that mash and strain it through a sack and you said with a hop with hops in it or like what did well, they do? They, they're I mean, straining the they're running the the runoff through a sack with hops in it. Uh, the ah. straining can, can can occur in a couple of different ways. Uh, there there are a number of approaches to it. Uh, so basically there's there's a, a device called a wilch uh, mark this is what mark uses in his tutor brewing uh and, it, and it's sort of a basket a, a little curved woven basket that goes on the inside of the tap uh inside the mash tun of the tap mm-hmm. and, and it kind of creates a hole that leaves liquid to run through to keep the tap from clogging while you're drinking uh, so that's one option, the wilch. Uh, another option is to have sort of a square off your tap, uh, the end of your tap that's in the mash, mm-hmm. and you square it off with, with basically a, a wooden box drilled with holes. And that creates that, that strainer that allows just the liquid through. We've tried that a few times. It's, it's really tough to get the exact right shape of the hole because it changes as the wood heats and swells in the pot. <laughs> you know, with temperature and stuff. So it, it, it was kind of a pain, but we had one work for a little while. Uh, you can also have a false bottom mm-hmm. on your mash tun. Uh, and that's also much more difficult to achieve with wood than it is, uh, later in time with metal. Uh, and, um, then we, we've taken a sort of, uh, slightly utilitarian approach and we have a hop back a strainer for our hops and we just use the hop back to strain the grain uh so it, it doesn't get up slowly poured off and and under let and all that like the professional brewers of this period were able to do uh but we strain all the grain out of a uh it's basically just a, a tub with a, a a bottom a screen a brass screen for the bottom so just running through that well, and you know, it's funny that you mentioned like, you know, doing string through bag and string through other various devices as a means of doing, you know, this homebrew. And of course, like I'm sitting here in my brewery talking to you and I'm looking over and I've got like a, a nice electrically remote controlled uh, unit with, you know, a false bottom and all this other fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we also look around and, you know, in the past 15 or so years, probably the most popular way for homebrewers to do all grain brewing at home is what they call brewing a bag, right? And, yeah, yeah. and that's not all that far removed. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, in some ways, yeah, you're right. Um, now, let's talk about, you said, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, you're brewing on Sunday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to make on Sunday? Uh, probably a porter, actually. Uh, we got some brown malt, some pale malt, and some amber malt. Uh, we uh, will we'll more than likely make a, a, a brown stout or porter. Sounds going to be now. Are you guys just sourcing regular commercial ingredients, or are you? Or, or is yeah, that an attempt at this to do? point, we 
we really can't. That's all we can do now. Uh, luckily, we've been able to get a hold of some of the Chevalier malt, oh, yeah. uh, which goes back to about 1820s. Uh, so uh, that's that's a good malt for us to use because we know that it's at least you know somewhat of an heirloom. Uh, Maris Otter is the second oldest malt, and we'll use that if we can't get the Chevalier. Uh, but uh, with this, with that uh, with the specialty stuff, we we tend to stay away from anything that's done. In a, a malt drum, uh, you know, any of the stuff that would have come after the patent malting of, of 1817. Uh, so, uh, we like to use the brown malts, the heavily toasted brown malts, the victory malts, uh, the amber malts, those kinds of things, uh, more so than, than any crystal malts, uh, from this time. Well, yeah, because I don't think crystal malt really would have been much of a thing back then, right? I mean, no, it, it didn't exist until Wheeler invents the, the drum. Right. Um, and by the way, speaking of that Chevalier malt, uh, listeners will remember I did a malt tasting of all the the quote unquote new heritage varieties that Chris brought up. So Chevalier, Hana, uh, Archer Plumage, and the Maris Otter. And mm, the thing that blew me away about the Chevalier was just how incredibly rich that malt was. You know, I thought the same thing when I made the pale ale out of it this spring. We just used 100% of it for our pale. And I thought, you know, this has a really nice malty flavor to it. Uh, it you know, I could see why they would bring that back as a malt because it, it had a, a flavor that, that modern pales didn't didn't quite have to my mind. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I agree. And it also has the advantage that they can market it as the original IPA malt. Uh. <laughs> I, I ended up actually kind of going against the grain, so to speak, and I made a, a mild with it, you know, because uh-huh. I wanted, because I figured with all that big, rich flavor to it, it would work sure. fairly well in a session-sized beer and still deliver a nice experience to you. Absolutely. Um, all right, so Sunday you're going to do a, a porterish uh, type of beer, uh, abbreviated method, not doing your full 900 hours. Or, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do the uh, portagile. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're you're going to ferment it, but like I mean, does it get served? How how does it get served? How can people uh, taste that, it? That we can't do. I mean, right. we're we're making homebrew five gallon batches basically, uh, and and what we'll do is is we'll ferment it in, in modern stainless. Uh, I I used to ferment in wood when I first started doing this, and mm-hmm. and I just got tired of throwing out batches. Uh, so <laughs> we we uh we went over to to stainless, <laughs> but we also ferment in the glass a lot, glass carboys, mm-hmm. because those were available in the 18th century. And uh, if you look at the inventory of any tavern in town, there's a whole bunch of glass carboys down in the cellar. Uh, and so the, they're, uh, uh, they're a, a good alternative for, uh, for a sort of cleaner, uh, somewhat period uh, type of fermentation. Uh, and so we use glass a lot as well. And, and that is uh, um, what we'll do with it and then bottle it. And then we'll use it for the, in the kitchen for cooking. We've played with using the yeast for baking. Like I say, it's, mm-hmm. it's not as successful with the, the modern brewing strains, uh, as, as, or with some anyway, as, as it is with others. But, uh, um, it's, it's fun to do. And, and then we'll give that to our coworkers. We also use it as sort of a, a test brewery to make beers, uh, that we sell at Colonial Williamsburg. So we take those recipes that, that I hammer out in, in there, uh, to our friend Jeff out at Aleworks and a brewing company and he break, brews it and bottles it and we sell it to taverns and stores at Colonial Williamsburg. So folks can get a chance to taste some of the, uh, the recipes, so to speak, and then also, uh, you know, be able to get it and take it home with them. 
Well, see, and that's fun, and that's fantastic. Now, because I mean, to me, I, the thing I like about the the whole food waste program, uh, I, I'm a food obsessed sort of person, right? I, I love I love food. If I go and I travel anywhere, the first thing I always try and figure out is okay, what's what's local to here. Because I, yeah. I figured that gives you. What a better... do I want to eat here? Yeah, absolutely. I do the same thing. Absolutely. Well, but it's, I mean, to me, it's also it's a chance to sort of connect in locally, right? You know, if you if you're tasting the flavors that are local, then that gives you a better understanding of the people who are there, the culture that's there. I I, I mean, I feel. Um, so it, it's good to see that you know we can also do some of that with history as well, uh, because I do think that's kind of important. You know, as you mentioned. You know, beer has changed over the years, and you have the things like molasses beer that we no longer see. And in fact, actually, if you were looking back at what you see from your history and the the lessons that you've learned by doing all this, is there anything that you see that that you wish modern brewers, either home or commercial, would kind of think about, or maybe bring back, or or incorporate into their inventory of skills and ideas? Ooh, that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of funny because I, I think, you know, sometimes people get the, well, you hear the complaint that, that craft brewers are just playing around. They'll put anything in a beer. Uh, they're coming up with all these crazy, weird ingredients that go into beer. But that is nothing new. Uh, we're putting crazy, weird ingredients in beer 200 years ago for sure we're doing weird and interesting things with beer i think that's something that's kind of uh, uh disappeared is in the 18th century there were a lot of recipes for beer punches mm. punches that were alcoholic that were based in in beers uh rather than uh like liquor or fruit juices or uh things like that necessarily as, as we think of them today some of them were, were probably pretty horrid discussing concoctions but uh other of them sound pretty interesting and, and are actually quite good uh uh and so you know that's something that's interesting to 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 think about is we how we consume beer uh flip is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. Frip is, is immensely popular in the 18th century, and it's it's a beer cocktail that's made in, in a glass. Basically, you would take your mug and, and put beer in New England. Typically, they include a shot of rum, mm-hmm. some cinnamon, some sugar, spices, uh, and then they also will add to that um, uh, egg. Yep. And you Wake it back and forth for a while, and you put it in your mug, and then you take a, a piece of iron that's red hot out of the fire, and you stick it in there, and it foams up, and it flips, and it goes over the top. And, it, and actually, it's quite delicious. Uh, it, it, it doesn't sound like it. You would think it's this has got to be really weird, uh, but it, it actually the the caramelization of all the egg thickens it all up, and you get this sort of uh, smoky, caramely, sweet flavored beer, and, and it really pretty good and and in the middle of the winter kind of you know warming kind of cocktail type of thing to have and and, and that's something that you know just has completely disappeared from beer drinking to these days in, in many ways is is some of the other things you could do with beer in addition to just drinking a glass of it and you know it's funny that you mentioned that because my family goes back in new england way 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 back like somebody figured out there, we're, we have somehow a distant relation on the Mayflower. Um, okay. yeah, like every New England family does. 
And one of the things that we have in our in our family collection is we have an old colonial era flip glass. Um, so <clears throat> it's just hanging out there in, in the cupboard. I've never or the china cabinet. Remember when china cabinets were a thing? Uh, it's, it's hanging out there in the china cabinet, and I've never dared breaking it out and made a flip with it for just the reason of like, that thing's really old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> recommend doing that. I definitely. Uh, my curator friends are cringing as we speak. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Frank, before I let you go and get ready for your brew day on Sunday, uh, anything else that you want people to know about either the ales conference coming up or colonial Williamsburg or the food waste program or anything else? Well, you know, if, if we were on the subject of food, if you're interested in food, uh, I can recommend going to Colonial Williamsburg's website, colonialwiensburg.org, O-R-G, uh, and uh, just type into the search bar there or recipes or 18th century recipes. We've got about 20 recipes up there that we rotate through. Uh, we'll have the original recipe as an 18th century cookbook wrote it and then a modern translation for cooked at home so if if you like food and cooking as well as beer uh go on and check out some of the wonderful recipes up on our website uh and i and i'd highly recommend uh somehow either in online or in person uh attending uh uh the ales conference if you go in person you get the added advantage of being able to try the three collaboration beers i have with some (laughs) local breweries here in williamsburg uh that are going to be really fun we're doing a pumpkin ale with no spice uh, actual pumpkin and something called pumpkin molasses, which is basically boiling the pumpkin down to uh, uh, like an apple butter almost. Uh, and, and we put some of that in there as well. We're making a porter with uh, um, precarious brewing that's going to have some burnt sugar and uh, some uh, mal- licorice root in it. Uh, some of the illegal ingredients sometimes uh, mentioned in 18th century brewing manuals related to porter. Uh, we're also doing a uh, uh, brown ale with a uh, Virginia beer company that's aging in, in wood right now with some, uh, some Brett and some local Virginia funk, uh, going on doing their thing in there. So we're going to have some really neat, uh, collaborative beers that'll be served as part of the conference as well as, uh, just a great time to be able to sit and, and relax and, and also hear some wonderful beer history. There you go. I, I'm, I'm rather bummed that I can't make it in person, but I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it virtually. Um, because again, I think people will know from the fact that this conversation has now gone on for as long as it has, yes. uh, this is, this is nerd nip to me. <laughs> I love Excellent. this. So Frank, thank you so much for taking some time here on a Friday to talk. True. To me. It was a pleasure. No problem. And uh, again, uh, folks, we will include all the links that you need in order to find out about the conference, about foodways, about colonial Williamsburg and whatnot in the show notes. So you'll be able to click through and be able to go explore. And by the way, thank you for doing translation from those those old recipes. They're horrible to read. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you, Drew. Wow. You guys really did go all over the place, didn't you? We tried. And I, I can't <laughs> wait. I, I'm going to sit down. And I want to think about some ideas. So if anybody out there has an idea of where you want to see Frank and I talk more about these things, because we did kind of go very general in this discussion. But if you have an idea of something that you really want us to explore, let me know because I can drag Frank back and we can talk more about it. Do you want to know more about what it meant to make a molasses beer, for instance, or you know the three different strengths of beer that we were talking about in there, or even what early Porter looked like here in the colonies? 
these are all ideas that I would love to talk more about. So let me know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com so I can make Denny have to listen to more of this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I, I think it's fascinating, man. But uh, again, you know, I don't know if I want to be involved because you guys are too geeky for me. <laughs> no such thing. But in the, don't forget, you can you can get a ticket to attend virtually to Ales Through History. It's running November 11th through November 13th. We'll include a link in the show notes. Go have some fun and attend some historical knowledge. Okay, we're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we're going to have a quick tip. We're going to have something other, and then we're going to get the heck out of here. So stick around. Welcome back. This is the end. And we're starting the end with a quick tip from Drew. This is the end. My only friend. Wait, no. no sorry. You read my mind, but I wasn't going to sing it. <laughs> um, all right. So quick tip. As I referenced back in the brewery, pay attention to your sparge levels. I almost always track my sparge levels nowadays via the interface on the grandfather uh, way back in the day when I was doing calculations and moving water around, I used to do a binary code count, but at the very least keep a sheet of paper around, do something, keep track of your sparge levels. Otherwise you're going to get yourself into some easy trouble uh, and no one needs that anymore. <laughs> you know what, man, I, I have a method for dealing with that. I only heat up as much water as I need. See, and that is one way to do it, but I, I always like to have, <laughs> I always like to have extra hot water on hand. You know, I find having extra hot water on hand to be handy. So if you're going to do that, keep track of your sparge levels. I have a water heater that heats up extra water if I need it. But yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Whatever works for you. And apparently what you were doing didn't work. Not that time. Um, <laughs> all right. And now for something other than beer, because of course life is more than just about beer. Uh, this time it's going to be an app, and we are now in late fall, and that means it's bird migratory season, which means that all sorts of birds are running around you, even here in the urban wilds of Pasadena, and definitely in the not-so-urban wilds of Eugene, Oregon, where Denny is. <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're like me, you always kind of want to look around and go, wait, what bird is that? Of course, if you're also like me, you have no damn clue. So... Instead of trying to break out your Ottoman and uh, search real quick through there and go, wait, oh, yeah, no, that looks right. I want to recommend to you guys an app called the Merlin Bird app. And it's from the Cornell Ornithology Lab uh, over there in New York. And it is a great little app that you can put on your phone and you can identify birds with it in three different ways. You can either give it a description, which is very kind of old school. Or you can take a photo of the bird and zoom in on the bird and get all the details and the app will analyze the bird that's in your pictures and say, it's this sort of bird or this sort of bird or this sort of bird. Um, or the one that I discovered the other day that we also thought was really, really cool because you can't always get a nice, cleaner picture of a bird. Sometimes they're doing stupid things like being up in trees. 
and you can't get the picture of them, but you can get their bird song. You can actually run your mic and allow the app to analyze the bird songs it hears, and it'll actually pick out multiple birds that it, that it can hear. So, like, if you have a whole flock of birds singing or a whole a bunch of birds, like, having a territorial dispute, it can say, oh, hey, that's a mockingbird, that's a sparrow, that's, you know, a, you know, a California scrub jay. Uh, all of those are actually all here in my area, and sometimes you can hear them in the background. Um, but I just, it's really fun. Again, is it absolutely necessary in your life? Nope. But is it good? Yep. There, there are many, many apps that are not absolutely necessary in your life. Uh, yeah, I use it too. I really like it. Although I have something even better when it comes to identifying birds and that's Paula. <laughs> she is like devoted her life to, I, I gave her a, a couple cassettes of bird song many years ago and she would listen to it as she drove back and forth to town. So she, she has a whole bunch of them memorized. So, uh, if I need to know a bird, the first thing I do is ask her because it's even faster than an app. There you go. But again, that's the Merlin Bird app, and they have it available both on iPhone and Android, and they also have a website that you can go use, and we'll include links to all that. Uh, but you can learn what birds are in your area. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it, it really is, man. It's very cool, uh, easy to use, and accurate. Uh, Time to go? Yeah, I think this has been an extraordinary extraordinarily nerdy episode of the show i think it's time for us to close out <laughs> yeah it has been we uh we nerded out on a bunch of stuff so thank you all for listening to experimental brewing you can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website experimentalbrew.com don't forget that you can follow us on twitter where we're at exp brewing we're on facebook we're on instagram drew hangs out on the uh, homebrewing subreddit and the slack homebrewing channel you can find me at the a HA discussion forum on Facebook, over on the brew house in the beer garden, uh, different, different places, but I'm out there. I'm easy to find. Don't forget that if you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And we have a phone number where you can leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text. It's 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Mm-hmm.